Welcome back to Christian Reconstruction 101. I am your host, Jeremy Walker, and today we are going to be continuing our discussion on marriage, talking about a question, are there biblical wedding vows? Very important question. We'll be going over Numbers 30 and Leviticus 27 in particular But we're going to be asking ourselves the question, what are vows? And in particular, in the Bible, when it talks about vows, what is it referring to? A lot of people have some misunderstandings where this is concerned, but that's what we're going to tackle today. Find this episode and more on our website at cr101radio.com forward slash Christian Reconstruction 101. Well, if you missed any other episodes, please go back to our website, check them out, discussing marriage. And a lot of groundwork goes into your ideas. But the question you have to ask yourself is, is what I think already, is what I believe, is what I've been taught, backed up by the Bible? That's an important question. Now, today, that's what we're going to be asking ourselves. So if you're the listener, thank you for joining me today as we discuss wedding vows. I want to go ahead and jump into this with a quote by R.J. Rushdoony, talking about vows. Quote, We live in God's empire of His law and His Holy Spirit, and we are thus in a totally God-created environment and realm. We owe everything to the Lord. We must never forget this fact. The meaning of the vow is simply this. Covenant man, mindful of his debt or gratitude to God, will from time to time seek to demonstrate it in a very practical way. We will promise or vow to God to do certain things or to make certain gifts. This might be done in a moment's flush of gratitude and then forgotten, but it is not forgotten by God. The vow is voluntary, but it is a commitment and it must be kept." Well, let's go ahead and jump into this because if you have not thought on this subject, and I have to be honest, I have not. I have taken for granted the idea of marriage and marriage vows and weddings and how we do things, and I hadn't put much thought into it. As I said before in a previous episode, my eldest son has recently gotten married many months ago, and I had to put some thought into this, and I'm continuing to put thought into it, which is why I'm sharing my thoughts here. This might help more people who are like myself or will be soon like myself, a Christian father trying to help his children and trying to move forward in the ideas of understanding our obligations and specifically to our children and about forming marriages in particular. There's a lot of people that get this wrong. In Christian circles, there's a vast majority of false doctrine, horrible false doctrines in Christian circles badly. And they all are self-justifying. They all feel they have the answers. They're backed up by the Bible 100%. They are standing on the Word of God. But as soon as you start to talk to these people, they fall apart, completely fall apart. So the question I asked at the beginning is, are your beliefs backed up by the Bible? If somebody sat down to actually talk to you and to have you discuss 
what you think is in the Bible and where you're basing your ideas from, can you do that? Do your ideas hold water? Can they withstand examination? Well, I found the vast majority of people, either one, will not look at their beliefs, will not challenge them, and two, will not talk to you. Period. They also have beliefs that govern other people, but not themselves. This is a very common subject in Christian circles. So let's go ahead and jump into Leviticus 27 and Numbers 30. Now, I won't be going over everything. There's lots of uh, verses here. Look it up for yourself. I mentioned before that you have to do study if you want to know something. You can't just have a quote mind verse like John 3.16 and think you understand salvation. It's not how it works. All Bible verses, if you believe in the inspiration of the Bible, are God-ordained and God-inspired. So you can't be afraid of the Bible. And so jumping into Leviticus 27, it talks about vows that men make to God. Very simple. It starts like this. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When a man shall make a singular vow, the person shall be for the Lord by thy estimation. It goes further into Leviticus 20, not talking about just about people. And uh, it goes into verse 9. And if it be a beast whereof a men bring an offering unto the Lord, all that any man giveth of such unto the Lord shall be holy. So now they're talking about first, gifts of service of people. Second, gifts of animals and creatures to God. Verse 14, jumping down. And when a man shall sanctify his house to be holy unto the Lord, then the priest shall estimate it, whether it be good or bad. And it goes into that. So sanctifying your home for the purposes and uses of God and his service. Verse 16, And if a man shall sanctify unto the Lord some part of his field, of his possession, and it goes forth from there as well, so your lands, your fields, your home, jumping down to verse 26, Only the firstling of the beast, which should be the Lord's firstling, no man shall sanctify it, whether it be ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. So now you're jumping into things that cannot be given to God or vowed to God because they already belong to God. Jumping down to verse 30, And all the tithe of the land, whereof the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. So, first, uh, verse 26, you can't vow things or say, I'm going to give this to God, because the first things already belong to God. Then you can't give your tithe or vow to give a tithe to God. It already belongs to him. You can't promise to give something to him when it already belongs to him. Jumping down to verse 32, And concerning the tithe of the herd or the flock, even of whatsoever passes under the rod, the tenth shall be holy unto the Lord, going on from there. Now, the interesting thing about Leviticus 27 is it has absolutely nothing to do with marriage. Nothing. So in Leviticus 27, there are three kinds of vows, basically. There are vows of persons, uh, whereby a man dedicates himself to God's service. Number two, there are vows wherein certain clean animals are promised to God. Number three, uh, other vows of unclean animals are also uh, useful as promised. The first kind of vow is a man or a person who seeks to, seeks to extricate himself for the service promised to God. This service may involve a single act or maybe some form of short-term labor. 
in the second section, the redemption of the clean animals, we see that a man who has vowed to give an animal to God attempts to substitute a lesser, lesser animal and is penalized. Remember, people are promising things to God. They're wanting to renege on this concept. Either it's their short-term labor, or if it's, oh, I just can't do that. If they're promising to give something to God, and they're saying, well, I don't really want to give this kind of animal to God. Let me give something lesser. They actually start to get penalized for these things. The third section, unclean animals are cited. A man could vow to give a donkey or a workhorse to God and later, uh, regretting the possibility of losing the, such a well-trained animal, he seeks to redeem it. This could be done at the assessed value plus 20%. So God knows that man is fickle. God knows that man is prone to fleets of dedication. And then later on, when he's had a chance to think about it, he goes, oh, hold on a minute, hold on. I don't know if I really want to do that. So the important thing in the Bible is you don't have to make vows of this nature to God, above and beyond. You don't have to. Now, your tithe and the things that already belong to God, you don't have a choice in those things. So when you give your tithe to God, you're not doing God favors. It's like the taxes to the U.S. government. They belong to the government. The government does not look at you and say, thank you for paying your taxes. It's their due, according to what they think. God in his tithe belongs to him as the Lord. Now, all of this still has nothing to do with marriage. I know that we started this episode talking about marriage. We jumped into something that has nothing to do with it because it doesn't. Now, these types of vows, vows unto the Lord, these are not marriage vows. Now, you have to ask yourself a couple of questions because I know that people talk about a couple different types of vows, okay? One, the biggest one, marriage vows, okay? Uh, that's the biggest one. Next would be vows where there is a baptism, either from a person who makes a profession of faith or because somebody's bringing their children to be baptized. Next, there are ordination vows when a person is uh, entering into service as a minister, a missionary, or otherwise, and these people are given ordination vows of sorts. And then there's oaths as well, like oaths for testimony in court. You raise your right hand, promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But the thing about all of these things is that there aren't any actual vows in the Bible. Well, there are no baptismal vows, period. None. There are no marriage vows in the Bible. None. Period. None at all. There are no ordination vows. And there are, of course, no oaths of sorts where you have to promise to tell the truth in court. It's an obligation. When a person is baptized, now they're obligated to God. They belong to God. When, uh, and baptism, like I said, is just ratified what's already been done. When a person makes a profession of faith and is baptized, they're saying openly to the community, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They're baptized. They're dedicating themselves to God. There's no actual vows involved. Marriage, when a person leaves father and mother and joins to their spouse, is an act. They're not vows. They're obligations. When you do that, there are things you undertake, the responsibilities that come with that. You don't have to promise to keep those, uh, those obligations. They are yours by the fact that you are taking on a wife, taking on a husband. You aren't asked to take vows to put yourself under those obligations. Uh, by leaving your family and being wed, you are taking these imposed obligations from God 
his institution upon yourself. There are no actual vows involved. Ordination is very much similar to the case. When somebody ordains somebody, I know churches make a big deal about it, like they are the ones who ordain somebody. Far from it. The church might acknowledge the ordination that God has already given. God has already singled this person out for his work. We, as either individuals or the community, Christian community, the churches, acknowledge that. That's about it. The laying on of hands and things like this is an acknowledgement. That is it. We're not passing on some kind of special thing to somebody to be a minister now. There are no vows that they have to take. There are obligations and responsibilities that this person is placed under. That is all true. But there there are no vows involved. Same thing when you go into court. It is understood under God's law that you are not going to bear false witness because there are, guess what, penalties for false witness. So when you go to court, it's understood that if you don't bear true witness, there are extreme sanctions against you, punishments for it. So you don't have to promise to tell the whole truth. You're obligated to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in a court of law. So tossing out this idea in question, are there uh, marriage vows? No, there aren't any. And now Leviticus 27 talks about vows to God, service, and giving things to God. So this cannot be used in any way, shape, or fashion to be discussing the concept of marriage, period. It's not there. Two, there are no marriage vows anywhere in the Bible, and feel free if you think there are. Not Bible verses that people have used to create vows. So I understand for better or for worse, sickness and in health, till death to us part. Those are wonderful words. I'm glad that we do it. I'm glad we have our cultural things that we do. There's nothing wrong with that. There's also nothing wrong with not doing it exactly like we would think here in America, our modern wedding vows and stuff. A lot of people change things, move things around. The reason why it doesn't matter is because there aren't any. So the concept of vows is what I want to focus on because people have taken this concept, the vows, and try to say that oh, these are the marriage vows. Well, these aren't in the Bible. Numbers, or so Leviticus 27 talks about vows to God. These are things we're promising to give to God that one, don't already belong to him. Two, are not already obligations we are already under. Marriage already has its own obligations. So when you leave family, you're taking those on. You're not having to agree to them. Remember, vows are not mandatory. Vows to God, these things of particular service, where you're giving yourself to God for a time or for a job or whatever it is, or your money or your efforts, whatever it is you're giving to God, are not required by God. These are above and beyond what already is obligated by God to show your gratitude to God. God knows that man is fickle, as in Numbers 27, goes through that concept the saying, number one, it's not obligated, but hey, if you do it and then wish to renege, wish to renege, here are the stipulations, because he knows that man is fickle. If you went back in our very first episode here on Christian Reconstruction 101, we discussed that concept, and also in episode two, that God does do things because how he treats man is that man's a sinner. God is merciful, God is kind, God is long-suffering, God is patient. And here, he expects you to keep your promises. So, one, he makes it clear all throughout the Bible, the vows to God of this nature 
are not obligations. They are not required. Two, if you do something, if you say you're going to do something, you better do it. God will hold you accountable for it. The reason why I bring all this up is because it comes to the biggest point, Numbers 30. Numbers 30 is important because people have taken this concept uh, and applied it to marriage vows. So moving on beyond the point that vows in the Bible are vows to God for service and or gifts to God, something along those lines. You will not find anything else in here in the Bible that says otherwise. If you do, if you think I'm wrong, feel free. Like I said, this is a wonderful teaching tool. You have to be open to correction yourself, and I do. Feel free to contact me on Facebook. Uh, send me an email at cr101radio at gmail.com, and I'd be glad to look at whatever you have, glad to look at it. But I have not seen it. It's nowhere in the Bible. Now, jumping into Numbers 30, this is a very important passage because some men have used this to become an iron grip of tyranny against women. This is a horrible heresy, a horrible heresy, and it's a terrible, terrible stain upon the name of Christian. Numbers 30, if you're not familiar with it, has to do with vows as well. Now, when not applied to what we're talking about in the Bible are vows to the Lord. It makes perfect sense. If you take the word vow in the Bible, extricate it, take it out of the Bible, remove it from its definition, remove it from its meaning, and then apply it to what you want, meaning wedding vows, ordination vows. Now, all of a sudden, you've given something a brand new meaning that is nowhere in the Bible and is completely alien to it. In Numbers 30, I'll read part of this. I encourage you to read the whole thing. But Numbers 30 starts like this. And Moses spake unto the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord hath commanded. If a man vow a vow unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. Very simple, straight language. You vow something unto God, you swear an oath to bind your soul with a bond, you better do it. Verse 3. If a woman also vow a vow unto the Lord and bind herself by a bond, being in her father's house in her youth, and her father hear her vow and her bond wherewith she bound her soul, and her father shall hold his peace at her, then all her vows shall stand, and every bond wherewith she hath bound her soul shall stand. But if her father disallow her in the day that he heareth, not any of her vows or of her bonds wherewith she hath bound her soul shall stand, and the Lord shall forgive her because her father disallowed her. Now this is very important. People are taking, and I've had many men, I've heard this discussion, only recently have I became aware of where the reasoning came from. That's why I did this study. And I wanted to share this, which is why I'm doing what I'm doing now. If you take this concept, as some people have, to mean that uh, vows cannot be given by women, people are using this to say a woman cannot get married, a woman cannot choose a husband unless her father agrees and allows her to get married. This means, some people have tried to utilize this, she must get her father's approval. 
not just to get married in general, but who she marries. People are utilizing these passages literally because they're saying the word vow and applying that to what they call a marriage vow and saying, well, if they don't like his haircut, if they don't like the fact that he's a construction worker, if they don't like his nationality, if they don't like whatever it is, if the father has a proclivity to maybe not drinking alcohol and the man that she has an affinity towards and would like to marry says, well, I believe in drinking alcohol is okay, but drunkenness is evil. And the father can say, well, you don't agree with me. You don't agree with my views on these non-moral issues, like drinking alcohol is a non-moral issue. Then I refuse you to marry this man, and I will not allow it. They're thinking along these lines that they have the power to refuse a godly marriage to a godly man or woman based on the subject that in these verses they have tyrannical overlord power over their daughters, not their sons, but their daughters in particular. This is what they're thinking. This is completely wrong on every shape, form, or fashion. Now, when you're looking at this, and you can read the rest of chapter 30 in Numbers, he's talking about vows unto the Lord. And if you go back to what he said, and if you read the Bible, just do a Bible study on this concept. It's not complicated. These subjects are never being applied to marriage. Not once are any of these subjects being applied to marriage. Never. If you find it, please let me know. Be glad to look at it. But here, a woman vows a vow unto the Lord and binds herself by a bond, being in her father's house in her youth. Number one, she is not asking, even with this, the vow that she's making to God for service or for utilizing her materials, uh, her animals, her money, her efforts, whatever it is, going back to Leviticus 27, she is making a vow because she wants to show her gratitude to God. She's not asking her father if it's okay for her to do that. She's just doing it. This is God saying, men are more responsible and have more culpability than women, period. You are always going to be held accountable as a man. Women, however, God says, are weaker and more prone to things. They can be tricked. They can have emotions that are going to obligate themselves that can be harmful in lots of ways. The father here is not being given tyrannical power over his daughter so he can become a tyrant and pick out his daughter's husband, and she must be under his thumb the rest of her life even. I've even heard some people say, if I teach my daughter that she has to do a certain thing, these are our family customs, whatever the family customs might be, wearing dresses down to your ankles, wearing a head covering, whatever your family customs are, not drinking alcohol, whatever it might be, there are people literally saying, number one, not only can they refuse marriages to their daughters based on the fact that they are forcing their family customs onto their daughters and, in turn, the new family that she is attempting to form, but that if she does marry and then changes her customs, she is dishonoring her father now and is in sin and evil. So even after she leaves her family, there are some of these people who are saying she is still obligated to follow everything the father used to teach her. There can be no changes in family customs and family viewpoints within non-moral issues. This is insane. These are horrible doctrines of tyranny made up by petty men 
who don't understand authority in the least, lest, not alone, could they ever wield it. And the sad part is, they don't wield it. They just want to have their thumb on women. It's sad. It is not backed up by the Bible at all. Not even a little bit. Going back to Numbers 30 here, what it actually is talking about is her vow to God. She makes one based off of the understanding of what biblical vows are. Service, products, money, land, anything that she's giving to God of her own free will. Didn't ask her father ahead of time. She's binding herself to God. And then the father hears and goes, oh, hold on a minute. What? You did what? And he finds that there's some way she is being irresponsible in her vow. On the day he hears it, he can say, no, you're not doing that. And then God says, you are now free from the bond and the vow. God is not giving fathers a tyrannical, iron-fisted control over daughters. The fathers are there to protect the daughters from silliness against God's retribution. Fathers are protectors, always, first, foremost, and always, of their wife and their daughters. The fact that people would use these verses to somehow give a iron-fisted control is staggering. But if he disallows those vows, they don't stand. But if he doesn't say anything, then they do stand. Now, later on, in the same chapter, it goes over some more stuff, talking about more vows and other ways women are either obligated or not obligated if they are married, if they're widowed, all the rest in between. But then here's the interesting part. You get to the bottom, verse 15. But if he shall in any way make them void after that he heard them, then he shall bear her iniquity. So if there is a daughter, if there is a wife, and the father hears about it, but on that day he did not disallow those vows, those promises she made, particularly to God, service, materials, property, whatever, and he doesn't say anything, those vows stand. She is now obligated to God. However, later on, a week later, he comes back and says, you know what, I had to read time to think about it, change my mind, never mind, I'm not going to make you do this, you're not going to be doing this, I'm going to disallow it. Now, she is breaking the vows, but the person who is being punished for breaking the vows that were made by her on her own decision is the father. He is now to blame. God will hold him accountable for her not keeping the vows that she promised to God. The woman is no longer obligated to keep them because the father said no. And two, she is not guilty because she doesn't keep them. He is guilty because he's the one who did it, not in the way that God said she, that he should. So the man is punished. The father is held accountable. Now, there are no shape, form, or fashion can any of this in Numbers 30 be applied to weddings. First, there are no vows. But if there were, if a person did attempt to use Numbers 30 to apply it to what they called wedding vows, number one, she doesn't even ask for permission to get married anyways because she's making the vow to God. And then later on, dad might hear about it. So this is not a situation where a girl or a man has to come to the daddy and you know beg for permission to get married and she has to get his approval on the man and who he is before she can make promises. If we were talking about what they call wedding vows, she's already done it. This would mean that the marriage is already over with. And then for these people to hold to such silliness, this means if he heard about the wedding a week later or a year later, 
then he could say, well, you know what? Never mind, you're not married anymore. And then give the father permission and power to disannul her wedding based on this. Disannul her wedding. At any point in time, if, even if you went down to verse 15 and applied this to what they're trying to apply it to, this would mean that the father at any point in time could disannul a wedding and it would be gone. What horrible, sinful doctrines people have created by because they want this iron-fisted, power-hungry control over women. It's staggering to me that people would even do such things. First of all, they are perverting Scripture, which is the biggest problem there is, far greater than just the fact that they're wanting power over their daughters, power over the new families, because they themselves want to be controlling, not just of their family, which most likely the people that are involved in this, by the way, have almost no control over their families. None. These are usually very petty people, petty little men who have no personal self-control, and therefore they're trying to gain control through power, but not through respect. They don't acknowledge God's limits on the Father's authority and mostly his responsibility. They don't focus on your culpability and your responsibility. They focus on your, my authority, my power, because you're a loser. That's why you do that. You don't have to fight for something when it's been given to you. God has given men a position above his wife. We talked about it in the previous episodes. Not because he's supposed to be her overlord, but because he is a husband, like a cultivator, to take care of her, to make sure she grows properly and keeps her safe. Same for sons and daughters. That's our job as fathers and husbands. We have a tremendous amount of responsibility to God. And to be derelict in that, to try to, as I've heard people say, I can disallow any marriage that I want based on anything that I want, not even biblical grounds, not because it's a mixed marriage, not because of this, not because of that, but simply because I don't like this person. I don't think this man is right for my daughter in some way. That's a non-moral issue, like the fact that he's a fornicator or he's a thief or he's a non-Christian. Real actual issues, but smaller issues. This is staggeringly disgusting. I met a man one time, he's on the internet, and he was one of these guys, and he believed fathers were in charge of his children their entire lives. Meaning that, even after they left their home, even after they got married, the daughters still had to listen to the father. The sons still had to listen to their father. No matter what the subject was, he had overriding authority and power over any decisions that they made. Any decisions they made. Can you, can you imagine such stupidity to believe? The interesting thing was, as I was talking with this man, because I was very interested in the viewpoint. But here's the thing. I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, I understand that you believe this is biblical, but he couldn't prove it, of course. But the situation was, I said, you believe this to be true. I said, so what about your father-in-law? You're married. Do you listen to your father-in-law? Hmm? Do you go back to the father of your wife and he gets to tell you what to do? He gets to make every decision for your family, and if he doesn't like it, you have to do everything he says? 
because that's what you're propagating. Is this what you are doing? And the man ceased to talk to me. See, people love this idea when it puts them in a position of authority and power to put others in subjugation. They don't want to view themselves as the helper, as the husbandman, as the person who is cultivating others for a life of responsibility outside of you, to live beyond you. I wish more people would get this simple subject. Weddings are fine and dandy. There's nothing wrong with our cultural conventions. I like them, actually. I love the wedding vows we have and all the rest of the stuff in between. It's very pretty. And the words are good, and it's a great time to invite people to a wedding, and it's a great testimony what Christian marriage is and is all about. And the vows go through that, explaining that, and the ministers are there talking about it. And so it's a great opportunity to be a ministering tool to others, but it's not necessary in order to form marriages. In other words, we're just putting a bunch of pomp and circumstance and floweriness and potentially you could say educational aspects to it, but aren't actually requirements. And that's a giant difference there. A man and a woman leave father and mother and they create a new family. In a lot of real ways, in a lot of real ways, a family is formed whenever a husband, or sorry, a young man asks a young woman if she will be his wife, and she agrees. Once that acknowledgement is there, and once their intentions are made known to the parents, in particular the family members, if they're around, if not, it can be to the community, then the marriage is valid. The marriage then is sealed at that point. They have both made a decision to leave father and mother and become one flesh. In God's eyes, they are wed. Hence, the concept of betrothal was well, soon as it's accepted, even though these people have not gone in and consummated the marriage per se, it is a verifiable godly marriage at that point. Everything else is the fluff that we put on it. So in our cultural conventions, you could say, once the woman has the ring on her finger, she is a wed woman. And I know that, yes, we wait and because we have to have our engagements and we have to have our wedding preparations and all the rest of that stuff, which is fine and dandy. There's nothing wrong with doing all that. But to understand that the marriage is not made because they stood up in front of a minister and said words. The marriage was valid before that even took place. This is just our acknowledgement. These are our cultural conventions, and I'm all for them. But whenever we step beyond that and say what we say is obligated by God, that's a different subject entirely. When we make up concepts like we can disannul vows based on Numbers 30 because it says the word vow and we skip out what the Bible actually means by what it's actually saying and we misapply it, we are in grievous sin. And the saddest thing to me is I hope I never get there is I never want to stop growing. I never want somebody to come to me and say, your views on this are wrong, and I refuse to listen to that person. But 99% of the time, that's the case. You try to talk to somebody, they will, they will refuse. They will refuse to talk to you, period. End of story. Now, I'm not talking about antagonistic fellows that deserve to be ignored, but we're talking about legitimate people who are actually trying to sit down and actually trying to talk to you. And I've had many discussions about these subjects. Sometimes I've been able to help people. Sometimes they've helped me. And it goes both ways. 
but you have to be ready to challenge yourself. If not, you could be stuck in some grievous, grievous uh, heresies. I hope that's not the case for all of us, and I certainly hope it's not for me. But to wrap up, Leviticus chapter 27, Numbers chapter 30, read over those. Do your own Bible study on the subject of vows. Go through everything. If you want to see what a biblical vow looks like, what service looks like, go back to 1 Samuel chapter 1, where Hannah, which is the prophet Samuel, he's the one who anoints David and all this stuff in between. He's the one who anoints King Saul. If you go back to that in 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah comes, she's barren, she comes to the temple. Eli, the high priest, is there. She's sobbing, he thinks she's drunk. And she says, I'm not drunk. She says, I just have a petition to God. And the petition was very simple. She wanted a child, a male child. And if God would give her a male child, she promised, she vowed to give her son back to God, to be in his service. And as you know the story, I hope you do. If you haven't, you can go back and read it. She does get a male child. She gets Samuel. And then after he's weaned, she brings him back to the temple. And like she vowed, she gives her child to God. And thereafter, she has six other children, I believe the number was, if a memory serves correctly. But Samuel was given as an um, offering to God, a vow. He was part of that. And this is the type of thing you're going to find all throughout the Bible, that type of stuff. There's not really that many in the Bible. But these are the subjects that it's discussing. Things that are not obligations that we have to give to God already, like our tithe, like our obedience. But these are things above and beyond. Services we will render, gifts we will give for the work of God, above what we are already required. These are the vows made unto the Lord that you will find in the Bible. You will not find this applied to marriage, not in any shape, form, or fashion. And I hope I've done somewhat of a decent job of explaining that. But feel free. You should do your own Bible study on the issue. And if you come across something that I missed... If you come across some place that I'm wrong, please contact me. I would love to see it. I can't see it yet, but cr101radio at gmail.com is the email you can send it to to get to me. So anyways, I want to thank everybody for joining me on this episode of Christian Reconstruction 101. Asking the question, are there biblical wedding vows? And the answer is no. And covering the subjects of Leviticus 27 and Numbers 30, answering that the vows in the Bible are vows to God above and beyond what our obligations are and not applied to marriage or the making of marriages. But you can find more of these episodes at cr101radio forwards, uh, cr101radio.com forward slash Christian Reconstruction 101. I messed that up there. But I want to thank everybody for joining me. We should always be ready to test ourselves. I love theology. I love talking about theology. And uh, hopefully, if you're listening to this, that's you. So let's never stop growing. Let's never stop getting correction and reproof. And let's push towards better good works every single day of our lives. Jeremy Walker, signing off. Thank you for joining me.